0: the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Revelation, beginning in the 12th verse. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, repent. Oh Lord God in heaven, we just thank you so much once again for this privilege to be at church, to worship you in spirit and truth, to gather together in fellowship with one another. And Lord, we're eager to hear from you this morning. Father God, I just pray that uh, you would overshadow me, use me as a vessel for truth. Speak through me, O oh Lord God. I pray that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts to receive uh, what you would instruct us in today. Help us to be sensitive to your word and to the truth and, and may you direct our paths, O oh Lord God. I pray that we'd learn from these churches, Lord, what, what is uh, good to imitate and what we should avoid, O oh Lord. May these warnings uh, to the seven churches be a warning to us, O oh Lord. And may we take heed. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we are on the third church of these seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches, and um, the church of Pergamum is uh, also in Asia Minor, and it is about 60 miles north of Smyrna, and so we are kind of making the trek, and uh, Pergamum is a very uh, large city, it is one of the largest cities in Asia Minor, and has a population of at the time of the writing, of about 190,000. To put that in perspective, the city of Yonkers is a city of about 190,000 people. Um, It's about 60 miles north of Smyrna, and it was the former capital of Asia Minor before Ephesus would become the capital. Um, Unlike Ephesus, which is known as uh, the financial capital or the capital of the cults, Uh, Smyrna, which was a luxurious coastal town, Pergamum was the capital of religion in Asia Minor. It was a religious center. And so, therefore, you could kind of see the shape of this. There were Christians living in Pergamum who were exercising their faith in Christ, and they were a minority among a minority. population in Pergamum was large by and large pagan, um, and there were different varieties of pagan cults that overpowered the city and so the Christians really struggled to survive and in some ways were very much like the Church of Smyrna under persecution. However, the church had some issues as well, and as we'll see here that Christ is concerned about their tolerance. A false teaching in the church, or those who hold to false teachings. So clearly, um, if the Ephesian church was guilty of elevating truth above love, which we saw, the church of Pergamum had the opposite error, and that was elevating love above truth. Their commitment to love and tolerance had degenerated into nothing more than a weak sentimentality, that threatened the theological purity of the church. It was a church that suffered, like Smyrna, but compromised by allowing the false sects, like the Nicolaitans, to have a footing in the church. And so this is a message for us today. It's a message for us about being able to live in a context where we are a minority among a minority. And I think we are. We live in... We live in a very secularized nation, and of all the 50 states in America, we are certainly not in the Bible Belt. We are in the Northeast, which tends to be primarily Roman Catholic and Jewish, and so we are a very small group of people in the Northeast as evangelical Christians. And so with that said, we can identify to some extent what the Pergamese were dealing with. But how do we, How do we function? Do we, when you live in a society where um, there are so many different religious beliefs and so much uh, uh, um, just immoral uh, behavior and immoral acceptance in the culture, the pressure is on to compromise and to bend. Just recently I was talking with Pastor Paul, and I says, um, as, as our region, particularly where we live in Westchester County, becomes more secular, and becomes more progressive, the pressure will be intense on the churches to capitulate and bend to such uh, worldviews and beliefs. And if not, churches are going to die. I think that the true church is going to get smaller and smaller, and churches that are big and popular are just going to kind of bend and capitulate. And so, you know, speaking to one person recently who attended one of the bigger churches in our region, So at the end of the day, this church, and and I won't name it, uh, won't take a stand on moral issues. They're afraid to. They're afraid to take a stand on moral issues because they know in the end they'll lose members, and if they lose members, they'll lose money. So you could see in some way how this relates to us. And I think it's very applicable. All right, so what makes Pergamum stand out? Well, Jesus says something very interesting. He knows where they live, right? So just remember that. Christ knows where we live. Whether it's Pergamum or here in New York, Christ knows where we live. He knows the context. He knows what we're dealing with. And, and the Lord has a very simple analysis. He says, hey, you, you, you dwell where Satan's throne is. And so the question is, what does the Lord mean by Satan's throne? You know, different cities have different uh, kind of reputations. So you talk about, you know, New York City, it's the city that never sleeps. 24-7 you can walk through the city and, you know, there's always something going on. And if you go to Chicago, they call it the Windy City, right? Because you get those, those east winds off of uh, uh, Lake, Lake Michigan, I believe, and it, and it creates a very windy and cold scenario there. Pergamum is the city where Satan's throne <laughs> dwells. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? As I said, it was a city known for its religious diversity. And it was home to four of the major cults in the ancient world. First of all, there was a temple to Zeus, a large temple to Zeus, which was four stories tall. It could be seen from a distance. It was a big marble uh, altar, and it could be seen from a distance and, it, and those who lived in the ancient world said it looked like a throne. It looked like a throne if you saw it from a distance. And there was a big cult to Zeus, who is the, the god of, or the chief god of the Greek pantheon. Right below him, at his foot is a temple to Athena, another major goddess in the pagan pantheon. And more importantly, moreover, which I think the indication may come here, there was a temple to Aslepios Soter. Slepios Soter. Well, who is the god Aslipios Soter? He was the god of healing in the ancient world. And his was the one cult which distinguished Pergamum. It was the one cult that distinguished Pergamum. It was a destination where people came from all over the ancient world, from the Roman Empire, to find cures for their diseases and sicknesses. Uh, it like, you know, where, where people have this mystical attraction to places like Lourdes in Portugal, seeking to get a healing from the Marian cult statue there. The temple to Asclepius Soter was represented and decorated by a large staff with a serpent twisting around it. As you could imagine what that looks like. It is the same symbol that is used today by the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. It is the staff of Aslipios, Soter. And it is the symbol of the medical establishment. When you see that, you know that's the symbol of the medical establishment. Notice the word Soter is used, which is the word Savior. And so the people of Pergamum saw this God as their Savior and healer. Now, clearly, as a Christian, you would know that this was a false god meant to ape Christ, meant to draw people away from Christ, was in fact an antichrist. But above all, Pergamum, second to Smyrna, was one of the chief cities of the imperial cult in the ancient world. It is where Caesar was worshipped as supreme, and there was no compromising. Much like Smyrna, you were required annually to pay your Tribute to Caesar through burning incense on the altar, in which you would have received a certificate. Without that certificate, you could not buy, sell, trade, or do business. With these four major cults dominating the life in Pergamum, it's no surprise that Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne can be understood in many different varieties, but this is a place where Satan rules. Satan rules in this area. These people are under the influence of the evil one. Paganism is, is wrought in this area. If they're not worshipping Zeus, they're worshipping Athena. If they're not worshipping Athena, they're worshipping Asclepius Soter. If they're not worshipping him, they're worshipping the Caesar. They are worshipping everything and anything but Christ. So you could understand that the people there would not be too tolerant of Christianity, would they? There are several implications here, and that is the tremendous influence of paganism, the large presence of the imperial cult in the capital city where the proconsular of Rome makes judicial decisions. And the course, of course, the illusion of the serpent of Asclepius tells us that this was a place where the church felt great pressure. What about us today? When we think about where Satan dwells, where can we say that he dwells? Well, the book of Revelation talks about two main opponents to the church. In chapter 13, we're introduced to the beast of the sea, who is the Antichrist, and the beast of the land, which is the false prophet. They are both empowered by the dragon, who is Satan, forming an unholy and evil triumvirate. And what we learn in the book of Revelation is that Satan's influence is always felt in two places uh, that exist in our world, two spheres of influence. One sphere of influence is in the state, and one sphere of influence is in religion. The state is represented by the beast of the sea, by uh, basically governments that are anti-Christ, that are secular, that uh, are opposed to Christian doctrine, that are opposed to Christ, and in its real sense, right, the book of Revelation is written in a time period uh, when Domitian was the emperor of Rome, where Christians were forced to either say that Caesar was Lord or that Christ was Lord. And the, and the penalty was death if you did not submit. On the other hand, you had false religion, which was abounding within the church. Gnosticism, which uh, had developed into a very bold and, and uh, a very a comprehensive religion at this time and had infiltrated the church in every way, shape, and form, was a religion that taught that that it didn't really matter what you did in the body because because what's physical and what's spiritual or the material and immaterial are very different. God only cares about the immaterial, not the material. So therefore, do whatever you want with your body. It's You're going to die and your body will go to the ashes. It's only your spirit that counts. And this gave way to to rife immorality among the Gnostics. And this was infiltrating the church. And it's not much different today because we still have governments that are hostile to Christianity. We spoke about last week, Nigeria in particular, or North Korea, which are overtly hostile to Christianity. But we see it even in our own country where the state is becoming increasingly more hostile to the Christian faith you can exercise your faith keep it in the four, clo- four walls of your church don't bring your faith into the public square we're told the separation of church and state has been grossly misinterpreted and as a result our nation is moving increasingly in the direction of human secularism and so we see that developing as increasingly our our whole life our whole uh, system is making it difficult to be a Christian without compromise. In the same way, we're seeing the church infiltrated by a lot of false doctrines. Oh, tolerate, tolerate immorality, tolerate ungodliness. Oh, we've seen by and large. Who would have thought if you told a Christian living in 1950 that all the mainstream denominations in America would be ordaining lesbian women as ministers, Someone would say you're nuts, that'll never happen. But it happened. In the name of tolerance, in the name of goodwill, in the name of love. And so we could see that what the church has experienced in the first century, and what we experience today, are not much different. And that's because Satan's strategy never changes. It just looks different based on the historical context. But the strategy is always the same. So we're going to look at those two strategies as they they unfold in our chapter today. All right, so let's uh, let's look at what Christ says first of his commendation, point one. He said, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we don't know who Antipas is. There's no uh, historical record of his death. But he was martyred um, in Pergamum, and it was a very publicly known event. Whether he was killed by mob violence or whether he was arrested and executed by the Roman government, we do not know. Uh, but but we do see that Christ acknowledges him by name, that Antipas was someone who stood out as what as one who was faithful and was a witness. The word witness there is very interesting because in the original Greek it is tra- it is said mar- Martis. That's where we get the word martyr from. So the word uh, in Greek martyr originally meant witness, someone who gave witness and bore witness for Christ under persecution and under great pressure. But ultimately it became to mean something much different as time developed. The martyr was someone who died for their faith. And so Antipas is mentioned here as, as one who bore witness for Christ under public scrutiny and ultimately died for his faith. He ultimately died for his faith. So this was real. Unlike Smyrna, people were already being killed. They were dying. Smyrna says, you will soon die. But here someone has already died. But here's the good news. Jesus says, you've held fast to my name you've held fast to my name you see one of the things that martyrdom does is send fear into the hearts of christians right the idea was that well let's kill antipas if we kill antipas it'll scare the daylights out of the church and they'll go mind their business and go back in their hole that's exactly the opposite the people stood stronger on their christian faith they held on to the name of jesus Remember, going back to the book of Acts, chapter 13, the term Christian was used originally as a pejorative, as an insult to make fun of uh, believers. But the Christians held on to it, the early believing church held on to it, not as an insult, but as a badge of honor. I'm a Christian, I'm a man of Christ, a woman of Christ, and I'm honored to be labeled a Christian. And so this phrase, and I believe that this is what Jesus meant, and they were not ashamed of the name of Jesus. Can the same be said of us? Can the same be said of us that that we'll stand under the pressure even when people are going down among us? Again, we're not seeing anyone die or go to jail in America, but we are seeing people's lives ruined for taking a stand for their Christian faith. Some cases they lose their jobs, they lose their public uh, uh, reputation. Are we willing to suffer scandal and Reproach for the name of Christ? Or are we ashamed of the name of Jesus? Remember, Satan wants to silence the church. And he does it through fear and intimidation. He uses it through the lost to pressure us to silence. With that said, Christ commends them. He commends them for their, they did not deny the faith and they, didn't, they held fast to his name. However, the Lord has a correction for them. He does have a correction. There's something the Lord is unhappy about. He says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. (laughs) It's like what you don't want to hear, right? (laughs) I have a few things against you. He says, you have some here who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. So, you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So, so these are the few things. There's a few, there's really two things, and it's all one thing. And it's that the church was not holding fast to doctrinal purity. Now, notice Jesus does not say, All of you I have something against, but some of you. It does not mean that the whole church was guilty, but that some in the church were guilty of tolerating, teaching, and advancing doctrine that was contrary to sound doctrine. Although they had not denied the faith, some had become so overly tolerant of falsehood in the assembly that they endured the presence and teaching of error. You think about that in many ways today, is the same way. Within the church there is this emphasis on unity, 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 love, love, love. But God forbid may it never be at the expense of doctrinal purity. We can never unite with those who preach and teach anything contrary to sound doctrine. Now Gnosticism was, a, was an awful and godless religion. And it promoted ungodliness. And that's why the Lord identifies the Gnostic teaching as the teachings of Balaam. Uh, Balaam became the sort of poster child, if you will, or or he became the the spokesman for all false prophets and all teachers. He's one of the original false prophets in the Bible. And to understand who Balaam is and and what, what he did to Israel in the Old Testament will indicate what Christ is talking about here correlation must be understood within the context of the Old Testament. You can read about Balaam on your own. It's about two or three chapters in Numbers 22 through 25, and then in chapter 31, we understand the full context. But I'm going to give you the summary. Who was Balaam? Well, he was a a false prophet who dwelt in Moab um, during Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Now, when Israel came upon uh, Moab, uh, the king of Moab, named Balak, was threatened. And he felt threatened by, by Israel and didn't want to give them passage. And, and so he called upon this, this man, Balaam, and said, listen, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to invoke a curse of God upon them that they may not pass through, that God may curse them. And three times Balaam tried to do this, but unsuccessfully, God would not allow him to in fact he promoted blessing upon Israel three times he promoted blessing on Israel Um, initially he refused but was lured by bribes uh, as Balak bribed him Um, in fact you know the story his donkey overthrew him and rebuked him I mean it's a very interesting story so Balaam fails. He fails to invoke a curse on Israel. He fails to stop Israel. The Holy Spirit restrains him and disables him from doing this. But one thing that Satan understands is if you can't, if you can't get God's people on the offense, if you can't get them directly, we'll get them indirectly. We'll get them through the back door. And so the other strategy of Satan is to seduce the people of God, seduce the people of God. And so what we learn is that in Numbers chapter 25, we read about the tragedy at Baal Peor. And this is when the Midianite women lured the Israelites to worship the god Pil Peor and to indulge in sexual immorality. And it was awful. It was like mayhem. So bad it was. Remember Phineas and his zeal thrust through the man and the woman who walked flagrantly through the camp as Moses was rebuking it, a plague fell and 30,000 people were killed. It was awful. It's not till chapter 31 of Numbers that we learn it was Balaam who was responsible for the whole thing. It was Balaam who inspired the Midianite women to go and to lure the Israelite men out and to cause this whole commotion very crafty, satanic indeed. What Balaam was to Israel was what the teachings of the Gnostics were to Parlam. Christ, I believe, that what Christ is speaking here is the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so what Satan was unable to do through the front door by pressuring them into capitulation, even under the threat of death, he was using the false teacher's To seduce and lure the believers into sin. I I could just imagine how they preached. Oh, Christ died, he forgave you of your sin. What's a little fornication? It's it's only something that Christ died for your sin. Go ahead, indulge, enjoy it. You're, You're free, you have liberty in Christ. Christ died to free you from the law, you're no longer under law, you're under grace. You've heard that kind of preaching before hyper-grace preaching. That's probably the descendant of Gnosticism today. Jude 4 tells us about such teachers for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's their M.O., to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Now, what would make this so attractive to the Pergamese? Well, if you're living in a culture and a context where you're a minority among a minority among a minority, and everybody's living their life a certain way, (coughs) this kind of doctrine makes it easier to fit in society makes it easier to blend in. Oh man, I'm re- I feel relieved now. I can go to the pagan party down tonight in town and and celebrate, you know, the uh, the feast of Zeus. I can indulge and go to, with a little meat sacrifice to idols, a little sex here, a little sex there. You know, just be part of the culture and blend in. I don't have to be so different anymore. And no one will know the difference. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. You see, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans has never left the church, has it? Just comes in different clothing. You can go to the pagan feast on Saturday in the name of Christian liberty, and on Sunday, worship God. Christ is offended. He has it against the church that they have some who hold these teachings these teachings should not have a place in the Christian church. See, one of the things that happens is when you're under persecution, it's very easy to overlook these things. But Christ is saying they must have doctrinal integrity and he's going to stand with them. I believe that we're living in days where it's very similar. We're living in days where the temptation to compromise is very real the temptation to speak softly on sins that we know are wrong but society embraces so, so for example right right i know that that our country has legalized gay marriage we're moving progressively in a direction of transgender rights and You know, all of this stuff has become very big in our country. And so I hear from other Christians say, why do you talk about that all the time? God whispers about sexual immorality. You ever heard that phrase? God whispers about it. No, God doesn't whisper. The Bible is actually quite, God is quite loud about it. God is quite loud. You know? Some, of, some words which are very good have been perverted. Let's be winsome to the world. Right? Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you compromise and don't really deal with the issues at hand or speak directly to the issues that are offensive to God so that you can essentially be accepted by the world. i got to tell you, the path to destruction of the church is to try to, to win the acceptance of the ungodly in the, wor- in the world. If you're trying to find acceptance by unbelievers and be and win them with your winsomeness and 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 not dealing with issues, you will lose. We'll lose our footing. You got a hundred years of history to look back over. In the past hundred years, of how many Protestant churches have fallen because of that? You don't yield. You don't give an inch. It's not that we're judgmental. No. It's not that we're angry or that we're hateful. No. That, that's what the world wants to portray us as. And then hearing it, you start to feel guilty. So, well, maybe like, no, you're not. We're just, maybe there are people who are. I'm not going to say that there aren't, but we're just communicating what the, the Bible says. This is the scripture. And there's so many different social issues going on today. Let's tolerate it. Well, we tolerated it for years, right? The church, think about it this way. 50 years ago, the idea of a couple cohabitating was was anathema in a church. And you go across from coast to coast America, you know how many churches have couples cohabitating? And, oh, you know, it's just the way things are today. You got to accept it. That's what happens the, lo- the more you start to tolerate and accept these things, the lower the standards get till eventually anything goes. Now at the same time, at the same time, we must be mindful and careful that we're not ready to go to battle over every issue, even minor issues. We must realize there are times to unite and there are times to not. But ultimately, that was the message for the Church of Ephesus. The message here is that we ought not to tolerate, not to give a footing to Balaam, not to give a footing to the Gnostics, not to give a footing to those who preach cheap grace. Listen to what John says, 2 John ten eleven. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him partakes in his wicked works. John himself was known historically when the Gnostic teacher Cerinthus was in the public bathhouse. John fled the building. He says, let me leave this building which has been contaminated and defiled by Cerinthus." John, the prophet, I mean, John, the apostle of love. 1 John 4, 2 tells us that anyone that teaches anything contrary to sound doctrine is an antichrist. Galatians 1, 8, 9, Paul says, anyone who comes and brings a gospel contrary to the one that we've given you let that person be anathema. Let them come under the curse of God. This is a call. This is a clarion call for our little church, for every Christian church, to be committed to doctrinal purity and to moral purity. Anyone is welcome to come worship here. Anyone is welcome because we all come through this door as sinners. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. And some of us come in here more dirty than others. But just because we welcome everyone who comes with their sins, we point them to the cross. And when you come to the cross, the goal is to repent and turn from those sins, not keep doing your sins. When the woman caught in adultery was brought to Christ, what did he say? He says, I forgive you. Where are your accusers? Now go and sin no more. And that's the third point, is the call to change. The Lord says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, how could they repent? They needed to purify the church. They need to do it through church discipline. They needed to confront these false teachers. They needed to confront the members who were holding to these doctrines. They needed to ask them to repent and recant of these teachings And if they didn't listen, they would bring them before two or three brothers. And if they didn't listen, they would bring them before the church. And if they didn't listen, they need to be expelled. Why do people who promote such false doctrine need to be expelled from the church? Because it's like a cancer that rots at the core of the church. This cancer was spreading and Jesus says, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. But notice what the Lord says. I will make war with them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. We know what that sword is. It's the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the intentions of the heart. Note this. Christ will conquer Christ will conquer false teachers not by force but by truth listen to what John Stott says falsehood will not be suppressed by the gruesome methods of the inquisition or by the burning of heretics at the stake or by restrictive legislation ideas will not be overcome by force only truth can defeat error The false ideologies of the world can be overthrown by the superior ideology of Christ. We have no weapon other than this sword, and we must use it fearlessly. And Christ gives a promise of reward for those who do repent. His reward is to give what? Some of the hidden manna and to receive the white stone. Well, the hidden manna, there's a variety of different meanings here. And there are many different explanations that have been given. One is that according to Hebrew tradition, um, there was a record that when when Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet got the Ark of the Covenant. And we know that within the Ark of the Covenant there was a container of manna that was preserved from when Israel was in the wilderness. And according to this tradition, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and preserved it underground under Mount Sinai. It wouldn't be until the Messianic Age when again the Ark of the Covenant would reappear and that hidden manna would be given to God's people to nourish them in the Messianic Age. I don't think that this is what's referring to, although this may be behind it, but I think it's pointing more towards Jesus himself. For Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Lord said in John 6.32, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so what Christ is referring to here is eternal life. In other words, if you repent and persevere and, and make this correction in the church you will inherit all the blessings of eternal life which I have purchased for you. Feast on me. Feast on the manna of heaven. And more importantly, looking towards the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is described in detail in Matthew chapter 19. And with that said, the white tablet there that is referred to as another blessing, as another reward, it was these it was little uh, white stones that had a variety of different uses in the ancient world and sometimes they were used as tickets into pagan festivals and so now i think that one of the things here that you could think of is as the christians were tempted to join the pagan festivals and give their a little white stone as a Entrance to the festival, Christ is saying, I'm going to give you a white stone and it's an entrance ticket to the marriage supper of the lamb, the messianic feast, the true feast. And that new name is probably the new name we receive by Christ when raised from the dead. I believe Christ will give us a new name one day. He said to Abram, you shall no longer be called Abram, but Abraham. He said to Sarah, you shall no longer be called Sarai, but Sarah. I don't know what our new name is, but he knows. And we are new creations in Christ. My earthly mother and father named me, but Christ has a different name. And when we come into that new creation, we're risen from the dead we will receive that reward. So so let me conclude with two points today, two points. Number 1, we need to hold on to the name of Jesus. Are we ashamed of Christ? Are we ashamed to bear his name? Taking the name of Christ will cost you. The world is increasingly anti-Christ. How will we we represent ourselves among the ungodly heathen that we're surrounded? We live in a very hostile context. The goal is to keep you quiet. Don't be quiet. Don't allow Satan to intimidate you. We must hold fast to the name of Jesus. None of us have suffered yet to martyrdom. But one day, we never know. And secondly, truth does matter. Truth does matter. We live in an environment today which denies the existence of absolute truth, denies the claims of scriptures. We must be more vigilant than ever to affirm and stand strong on the truth of scripture. We cannot compromise, we cannot afford to negotiate the truths and the teachings of the Bible. When we see those who call themselves Christians, who are preaching another gospel, who are lowering the standards of the faith, who are trying to capitulate to the world and compromise, we need to call them out in love. We need to call upon them to repent. If we begin to take a strong stance for truth, let let me make this known. The size of your social circle will decrease. Our church will not grow very much. And you will be disliked and hated by the world. But the good news is Jesus loves you. The church of Pergamum endured much like the church of Smyrna. But we must be reminded that as we look to them today, let's stand firm on the things which we know to be true, not allow the compromising attitude of the world to sink in, and stand fast and hold fast to the name of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this day. Father God, speak to us, O Lord. Speak to our hearts. And help us to understand, to be committed to the doctrinal purity and moral purity of your people. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins. Forgive us for the times when we bend, we compromise, we capitulate. Oh, Lord, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.